Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. Today, I'm talking to Suzanne Shelton of Austerlitz German Shepherds. Hello. And Danny Spady of Avid Aussies. Hey, everyone. And we are diving back into breeding. So this is a breeding podcast take two. And today we're talking about neonatal stuff for puppies. Um, some really, really young um, socialization things. And then a couple um, hot topics in, uh, in the world of breeding. So we're going to start off um, with some talk about neonatal and young puppy experiences. So um, Suzanne, we'll start with you. And can you just kind of talk through what you know, in, you know, five-ish minutes or so, <laughs> um, what, like, neonatal young puppy experiences look like for the puppies that you raise? Sure. Well, for neonatal puppies, um, we're talking, you know, basically this is the loaf of bread that sits in your whelping box trying to die for the first, <laughs> you know, week. And you and the mother are actively trying to keep that puppy alive, <laughs> And for my breed, which is German Shepherds, this is super easy because it's a pretty natural breed and they're pretty robust dogs. They generally, if they're born alive, they're going to stay alive outside of pathogens or um, some sort of catastrophic birth defect or something like this. So for neonatal puppies, the main thing that we're doing is we want the bitch to be happy and content and calm and not stressed or distressed at any point during that early couple days. Um, you know, we want the puppies to be warm, but not too warm, have the right humidity and all of those and ample nutrition. And those are the sort of the, the focus that we're having in that newborn neonatal period. Um, we're really just focusing on keeping everybody happy, especially the mother, um, because her, her happiness and contentedness are, are super duper important um, to her puppy's survival. And then as the puppies are getting older, those needs are changing because they are becoming very gradually aware of existence outside their own body and then the existence of other animals. Um, and then we're moving into socialization periods and, and all of that. And so we're looking at their world expanding gradually. We're teaching them how to be clean we're teaching them, um, we're really not teaching them how to be clean. We're, we're allowing their natural instincts to be clean, to be developed. Um, we're providing novelty in their environment, and we're providing the space needed for, for the puppies at that particular point in their development. Yeah, very cool. <clears throat> and Danny, do you have anything to add there? Nope, that's pretty much the same um, yeah. in doing the things like building confidence um, and giving them experiences. The biggest thing is really focused on how they react to it as opposed to just throwing the, the time-sensitive experiences at them. Um, so really paying mm -hmm. attention to where the puppies are. I mean, they, there can be a drastic difference in just the, the same litter of the different mental ages of the puppies and the developmental stages. Um, so it's kind of a balancing act of making sure that the one puppy that's ready for something isn't having the same experience that the other puppy that might be essentially flooded by that same experience gets. 
Um, yeah. So just kind of yeah. making sure that you, you're you're lightly touching on everything and making sure that you've got super happy puppies and yeah, especially the mom. I mean, if you've got a good mom, you've your your job is about a hundred times easier. Hmm. Yeah. So what is some of, you know, as these puppies are moving into their socialization periods, what are some of the things that you guys are thinking about for exposing them? Uh, and, um, I know the, the exact timelines can vary, um, from breed to breed. And even I would imagine litter to litter with some just seeming to mature a day or two earlier than the ones you've seen before. Um, so we don't have to get super nitty gritty about time, but what are some of the things that you're trying to make sure that they've experienced before they're, um, you know, flying the coop and heading home with their, their new family? Uh, and we can start with you, Danny. Okay. Yeah. So some of the, the things that my puppies, especially like specifically for my line, I mean, everything varies depending on the dogs that you have. Some things that, that my Aussies might need are things that like the bull terrier puppies won't ever need. Um, some of my biggest things are making sure that they have access to cleanliness so that they can really start to keep themselves clean. Um, perfect world. It results in, as an example, girl puppies that go through their heats and will not drip. Like if they even feel a drip, they'll flip around and clean themselves. Um, it makes life a thousand times easier, especially if you've got a house full of intact bitches. Um, making sure that they've got good conditioned emotional responses to things that that are, are pretty important in baby puppyhood, things like basic handling and being picked up and toenail trims and ear checking out and baths and those kind of things. Um, and my guys specifically, they mature pretty slowly, so it, it depends on what we can get covered before they're ready to go home. Um, but then we also have I like to throw in resource guarding protocols as my line does tend toward resource guarding, depending on the specific litter. Um, and just making sure that there's a really clear, happy conditioned emotional response to them. That actually has changed my crate training protocols long-term. Um, they actually have done better with little crate training as opposed to more crate training. Um, it, I found that more crate training for my specific lines as baby puppies has created frustration between litter mates um, if there's anywhere close that they can see the other ones. Um, it's been a fascinating experience over the last few letters to figure that one out. Um, but it's kind of paying attention to the individual puppies and not just taking the whole litter as a, as a, well, this is, and I personally raise my puppies with puppy culture primarily, um, with a couple little tweaks and perks and the usual that everyone kind of adjusts their own, their own breeding to. Um, and, so it's, it's the basic of puppy culture, but it also depends on the puppies in front of me. I like to keep them until about 10 weeks so we can get a fair number of stuff in, um, a fair number of different experiences in. And then when everybody, my, I think the most useful thing that I've had is to have all of the puppy people come pick up at the same time. And then they all get a rundown in person of how the puppy was raised. They're holding their puppy. They all basically have a short one hour class with their puppy um, of they're running amok and they're doing their thing. And then we work on, okay, that's your puppy. Go ahead and start the name game. Go ahead and start attention as the mother of all behaviors. Um, start with body handling. Here's how you do it. So you can continue what I have done because just because they've read it in a book or watched it in a movie, they don't know what it's like to do with their specific puppy. Um, that has made so much more of a difference than whatever I can do and then send off a puppy sight unseen. Um, I haven't done that in God, four litters, five litters. So that's been less of an issue, but um, that's probably been my biggest puppy experience that I have found the most helpful because there's a lot of it that honestly, it has to do with the, how the owners continue it. And if you don't know what it looks like, how are you supposed to continue what the breeder just did for 
two and a half months. Yeah, of course. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Suzanne, anything to add for what you do um, to try to expose your puppies to as you're moving towards sending them home? No, I, not much. I think Danny and I are, are fairly similar and our breeds are fairly similar um, on the breed spectrum, the spectrum of all breeds. Um, herding breeds often tend to be sort of clumped together in their traits. You know, I think what we're looking to do is we're looking to hit common sources of challenges for dogs going forward after they leave us and sort of giving a little behavioral inoculation to that. So That's a great way to put that. Yeah, you know, like... Um, you know, when the puppies are little, we do this brushing when they're still neonates, actually. We have an infant brush for humans that's really soft, and we just stroke the puppies with that. And we continue that um, off and on during their time with us so that when they move into the new home and their their actual coat comes in that requires care, they have sort of this already default response that brushing is pleasurable, what the motion looks like, what the sensation feels like. It's very similar for nail trimming. You know, the idea that someone's going to handle your foot, someone's going to handle your foot and maybe squeeze your toe and then trim your nail off. Um, sort of just, just a little bit of um, an inoculation that this is normal. This is normal handling that we have and we get treats for it and it's fun. It doesn't preclude the owner of any responsibility in conditioning nail trims and teaching good husbandry going forward. That's a, a really common misconception that I think people have when they're getting puppies that have been raised in an enriched manner is they may think that it's like an app. You can just plug it in. So I have installed the nail handling app in my puppies. And now your puppy is going to be perfect about its feet for every developmental stage. And, and I think it goes a lot to what Danny says as far as the breeder connection to buyers is that we need to be in contact with our buyers because that puppy, I guarantee you, our puppies are delightful having their nails trimmed when they go home between nine and 10 weeks. But even my keeper is going to hit a developmental stage associated with adolescence where they're going to not be bad, quote unquote, bad or difficult or fearful about their nails, but they're going to be um, like wiggly, wiggly, mouthy, just, you know, like uh, lacking a little bit of maturity, almost as if they were adolescents. And um, so, I, you know, we're trying to hit those broad strokes. We want the puppies to accept that novelty is normal. This might be novelty in your environment. It might be novelty in how people look or how people smell or their size, their shape, their movement. Like, okay, people are different. They look different from day to day and the environment is different. So we've got this aspect of novelty. That's a broad stroke. We want that work to be done. We want the sort of broad strokes that having your body handled is normal. Having your ears manipulated, that's normal. People manipulate their ear. You stick your finger in my ear and I get a cookie. Okay, people are weird. This just is normal. This is an everyday thing. Um, same with um, opening the mouth. 
opening the mouth and sticking something in it. We do that a lot where we just open the mouth and stick a little treat inside. Um, just so that the dog will, when you open its mouth and put something in, it will swallow it. And then we can turn that into pill taking very easily. You know, I put something in your mouth, swallow it, and you'll get something better. Um, so broad strokes of these big concepts. For German Shepherds, we're doing a lot, a lot of work um, recently with um, approach, someone directly approaching you randomly, someone appearing around the side of a building. Um, these are common triggers in German Shepherds of barking, which is not, uh, that's a correct trait for the breed. It's not, a, it's not a bad trait, but it's something that people can get freaked out by and then it can go off on a side road and now your, your puppy raising is off track. Um, so that's something we do a lot with crate work. We specifically want puppies to associate crates with um, being relaxed. Um, we want them to not be at barriers. I really, really, a hundred million times over, do not want my German Shepherd puppies practicing barrier frustrated behaviors like um, frantically running at the X pen walls and barking and grabbing the pen and pulling and all this. Don't want that happening. Want to prevent that. Don't want them at crate doors doing that. So we put a lot of work into that. Um, and also into the idea of cleanliness. This, um, this is important because cleanliness work, biting and mouthing, and crates are the first interactions the new family is going to have with behavior. Like these are the biggies, right? Is the puppy toileting all over my home <laughs> or in its crate? Is it a, is it a quote unquote dirty puppy? That can get your relationship off to a bad start. Um, can I confine the puppy for the drive home without it having a mental breakdown such that I can never get it in a crate again? Um, is it comfortable in a crate? So is it comfortable with confinement? That's another one. And then biting and mouthing. Those are, those are things that I know my puppy buyers are going to be dealing with from literally the moment they take the puppy. And then we do something similar to Danny where we have a, you know, like a half day or a full day seminar um, for puppy pickup. We also, um, excluding some professional trainers that, that frankly, they know more than I do about this stuff. So they don't need to see, um, you know, how to get your puppy to let you hold its foot. A excluding those sort of clients um, our average pet people, they need that one-on-one -on -one time. They need that instruction. They need to know what it looks like. They need to see that it's not as neat and pretty as a YouTube mm -hmm. video. Um, you're right. That's I think it also helps for them to see everyone else with their puppies so it's they don't feel like, well, so-and-so got the perfect puppy. No, no, no. You're all in the same boat, and all of the puppies are checking out exactly the same because they don't know you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's a great context setter, and um, we started doing that a few years ago, and um, it, it's it's tremendously beneficial. Um, it, and, and for breeders that aren't trainers, I think that it's a great time to bring a trainer into your 
into your world of mentors. Because if it, not all breeders are skilled trainers, and you know that's okay. We can't expect breeders to do everything in the world. But if they have a good trainer close to them, that trainer can step in that gap and um, do that work and meet with their clients on that day and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, it sounds like there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm tired just listening to, um, to this. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is a lot, but to be honest, the feeling of being overwhelmed by it decreases with every litter. Yeah, so yeah. the more a breeder has opportunities to practice their puppy raising skills, because these are skills, they're not gifted oh, yeah. to us from God. We have to right. learn this stuff. And if you and we've all made mistakes, we all make mistakes oh, that my we would God, never repeat right? in the litter. Yeah. So it's the breeders that we see that get the deer in the headlights, paralyzing anxiety about the work that needs to be done. Are, are new breeders or are inexperienced breeders that are breeding very small numbers of litters. Mm-hmm. And every time it's new. But if you have an experienced breeder that is getting to practice this every year or even multiple times a year, then this stuff becomes second nature, just like it does for dog trainers. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. That, that's been a huge difference for me. I mean, I've got Right now, I've got five dogs under 22 months old. Um, if I've, I've gotten to be a whole lot better of a teenage puppy raiser mm-hmm. yeah. than just keeping the single keeper puppy. And right. I've got my one solo perfect puppy. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pr- now I've got, I've got five that range from, I, actually, right now, they are eight months to 22 months old. And it's two intact males and three intact females. Um, one set of litter mates, two different breeds. Like it's, it's been a huge experience to be able to help and be like, okay, now I have more of the time per puppy that as an example, a single parent would with their puppy, um, as opposed to me being a dog trainer and I can take, I can't take all five of them to class every week, um, to like the class that I teach. They can't all be my demo dogs. So it's, it's nice to be able to get that kind of experience too. And I've learned more in the last 22 months with the five brats that I have and the other, oh God, I mean, I don't even know how many dogs I've raised from puppyhood to adulthood. Um, and it's, it's nice to not be as panicked as, as I once was like with a, with the people with the 18 month old teenage boy with not a brain in his head. Um, it's been so much more helpful for my puppy owners too, I think to be like, no, you're not the only one that's annoyed as I'll get out with this puppy or are seeing this specific phase or two. And here's the, the kind of range that we're looking at. Yeah. It's a, um, it's, it's kind of one of those, you want to go to an experienced person. Mm-hmm. It's or, a practice know, makes perfect. Thing. Know what, yeah, no, for sure. And, and it's nice to know kind of what you're getting into with your breeder. Like, are you going to have a breeder that you can ask that of and, and really have honest expectations? I mean, we would all love to have a, a, a magic eight ball breeder, but if they have, if they raise one puppy every eight years, it's going to be different when you go to them for help. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just one of those making sure that you've got honest expectations for all of the weird phases and the great phases and the, the just how they develop. That's such um, a good point, a the, the expectations point um, for both breeders and, and owners. We could do a podcast on just 
having realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. I think that makes or makes or breaks a breeding program. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So, Danny, you briefly mentioned puppy culture. Um, do both of you guys raise your puppies with puppy culture or kind of what what led you guys to go for using one of these programs? Um, I guess, Suzanne, we'll start with you. But, you know, there's puppy culture, there's Avidog, there's early neurological stimulation. How do you make sense of it all? And how do you like, yeah, where do these programs yeah. come in handy if they do? Yeah, I have to credit Cindy Bennett Martin, who posted about puppy culture when it was very, very first released. And um, she said something about it. And I I just have so much respect for um, for Cindy. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go see what what that is. Um, And I and I basically looked at at its listing on on the website or whatnot, or or maybe it was Amazon. And I was and I looked, that looks really interesting. So I'm just going to buy it and see. And I was pretty dubious because I'm generally a dubious person. <laughs> and, Agreed. you know, I'd been breeding for a very long time at that point. And I thought, well, it seems like I'm already doing a bunch of that stuff. And I'm, I'm pretty awesome. And I'm a professional trainer. But, <laughs> you know, I, I also, because I'm a trainer, I have an expectation that I need to be investing in continuing education. And a lot of breeder continuing education, unfortunately, can be a little mind-numbing um, and yeah. not not intellectually really interesting. They, they often doesn't don't – it's just – you know, it's a lot of the same stuff. So anyway, I, I got it and I watched it and I thought, well, that's really interesting. I really like how it's put together on developmental markers. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of this stuff because I'm awesome, but I'm going to try it one litter. And we're just going to compare that to the previous, you know, 50 litters or whatever. Right. And so we did. We followed it pretty religiously the first time. When it first came out, I had four-week-old or five-week-old puppies. So we jumped in at that point, and we did it going forward. Um, Then I had another litter after that, and we were in it from, you know, from before birth, and we sort of followed it all the way through very religiously. And then we just sort of compared, and I thought, you know, it is a lot of the same things that we've been doing, but they're often done with much more precision because they're based on developmental markers, and there's a lot of... um, safety bumpers, right? So if you do something at the right time, it can be beneficial. If you do something at the wrong time, it can be detrimental. This is super, super true in puppy raising. And it's often not something that we talk about with breeders very often. You know, we'll say, well, socialize your puppies. Well, (laughs) what does, what the heck does that mean? What does that actually look like in practice? And is some of that quote unquote socialization we're doing actually being detrimental to our puppies? Just like after the puppy goes home, things that are done well-intentioned can be detrimental. So I really liked the safety bumper aspect of it. And I liked the developmental markers, the way it was paced out. Um, So, and then we sort of followed those puppies. I think those puppies are about five years old now. Yes. And um, so we've got lots of sort of data from our own program. And I feel like the puppy culture raised puppies are better um, overall. And I feel like we're better breeders because of this 
better puppy raisers, I guess I would say, because puppy culture really isn't going to micromanage your breeding choices. It's not that mm-hmm. kind of program. And that's fine for me because I don't need someone telling me how to breed dogs. Um, I'm past that point in my breeding journey where I, I need somebody to sort of micromanage me through how to construct a pedigree. Um, so it, it works. I feel like it's been beneficial to our program I, overall. I really like how accessible it is. There is literally no breeder that can't afford to buy this product. <laughs> and as far as breeding expenses go, it's it, this is like it's nominal. I mean, we we you can drop thousands of dollars in in on an emergency C-section. So you have to be prepared for that if you're going to breed dogs. So you can spend the little bit of money that this program costs. I like that about it. Um, or heck, what we spend on puppy toys in one <laughs> trip to PetSmart. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I spend so much money uh-huh. on puppy toys. Yeah. So yeah. So like, it was an easy buy-in for me. I immediately felt like we saw tangible benefits when the puppies went home. I liked the connectivity between what we do and the new puppy owner, and how accessible it was for the new puppy owner. Um, we've had better outcomes overall going forward with it. So um, we do, you know, things for our breed that that would be different from the bull terriers um, or even mm-hmm. the Aussies um, yep. and things that we know in our line we need to work on specifically. But the program itself is fantastic. It's it's um, it works really well well for us. I mean, it just does. I don't think I have anything negative to say about it. And we've done a lot of litters with it at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's really good to hear. I know, I think I said this right as we were hopping on that. I know I've kind of heard, you know, puppy culture versus Avidog. And I think those are kind of the two main, like big programs that I've heard about. And then I've also heard about ENS, which is um, much more early. Those are, that's for very, very young puppies. Um, and ENS is in puppy culture. It's in most, oh, yeah. most puppy raising protocols. So it's not now. really an either or mm-hmm. you, you would generally no, do yeah, both. No, no part of it. Um, no, it, it's, it's, it is. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, um, Danny, for, for those of, um, our listeners who aren't familiar with ENS, would you mind giving people like a really quick overview of it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, ENS is early neurological stimulation, also known as the Super Puppy Program or Super Dog. Um, it's a it's a method that was developed, I believe, by military. Yeah. Um, for the baby puppies to kind of in in more military German Shepherdy type terms, build their nerves, have them have stronger nerves, um, basically make them less spooky by exposing their nervous system to various low-level stressors. And when we're talking low-level, it's a Q-tip between their toe paws for five seconds. Not any longer. Um, you, don't, you don't wait till there's a reaction. You're just stimulating different parts of their body and different parts of their nervous system, getting blood flow to various parts, having them, um, as an example, you hold them upright for five seconds, and then you flip them upside down where they're head down, butt up for five seconds, um, set them on a damp washcloth so that they have that stimulation. They don't have to stay on it. They can walk off it. Um, It's just enough to make their nervous system and their body 
kind of get out of that little warm loaf of bread stage <laughs> in the first two weeks or so. Um, baby puppies, naturally baby puppies, are kind of in a sweet little cocoon of sheltered, especially if they've got a good mom. Um, they're not going to be real stressed. So it was. it's kind of a method developed to say, hey, nervous system, you're in there somewhere. Let's start to kind of get you activated uh, because a, a good mom will generally have puppies in a den. They're all curled up. They're warm all the time. They're happy. They're fed. They don't move a whole lot. Um, they might toddle off to potty once they get more functional. But generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of outside stimuli. So it's kind of just a kind of start to amp that up, um, have their nervous system start to adjust and figure out how to recover from those things, not as, as say, um, active as like the, the startle reflex stage within puppy culture, but just enough to where their nervous system can start to attach to all of their bits and say, okay, this is what we do. Um, it's a, it's a pretty cool, it was kind of the, the original puppy culture, if you will, um, kind of puppy culture light 40 years ago. Um, for breeders, that was mind changing. I've had a lot of, um, th- like there's a, there's a very large span of, of variety within Aussie breeders and how long they've been in and kind of what they do. But I've had some breeders that have, that swear by ENS as much as some more current day breeders swear by puppy culture or avid dog where it's, they're like, oh yeah, we can tell what an ENS puppy was raised like, because when we get the eight week old and we plop them on the table and we start blow drying them, they're fine with it. Yeah. Um, and it, it became a, a pretty big, pretty important step as opposed to keeping everything quiet and non-stressed and real calm and like super baby quiet. Uh, just kind of help them get a jump start in, in how to function. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all very cool. And I think, um, part of the reason I was excited to ask you guys about this was because as, um, a relatively informed potential puppy buyer, I still was having a hard time just like my, my go-to is just like, if a breeder mentions one or two of the three of these, I'm pretty happy. Um, (laughs) pursuing, you know, at least like looking forward versus if I'm kind of skimming through a website or talking to a breeder and, you know, this and nothing about the early socialization comes up, then that to me is something that I move on. Um, pretty quickly without if if they don't have anything kind of in that um and then as a potential puppy buyer two of the other things that i'm often um asking about um because so um you know if and when i get another dog i'm looking at border collies and um most border collie breeders that i'm interested in are either breeding for sports or breeding for herding and um those can be quite different within the border collie breed <laughs> um And, uh, so I more or less because of the breeders I'm looking at, I know kind of what they're getting as far as a lot of the early socialization. Um, but one of the other, two of the other things I'm looking at in particular are, um, for border collies, I want to see that the breeder is also teaching the puppies to be still in a way, um, which often ties into teaching them some aspect of crate training. And then you guys have both mentioned cleanliness, and I really like to see breeders that are getting a jump start on potty training. Um, Suzanne, I know you both have a crate school and a poop school um, for people to, um, and uh, they're both geared towards breeders, correct? Well, poop school is, um, it's a sort of a, a two-part thing. There. There's two versions. There's a version for for breeders, and we also have fosters 
that have rescue litters um, in a shelter or in their home. So that's sort of from basically from about 14 days through 10 to 12 to 16 weeks, because obviously some um, slow maturing breeds go home late as compared to some precocious breeds. So we might have um, puppies that are staying with the breeder till they're three or four months old in some breeds because they're not even taking solid foods until they're eight or nine weeks old. Um, and then there's a part B that's for the new puppy owner. So that's a house training protocol. Um, and and they're, they're separate and distinct skills um, from our point of view. But from the puppy's point of view, it's all part of cleanliness training and developing um, toilet habits that are conducive to living uh, in a home. Um, crate school, at this point, crate school is, we're really focusing on the breeder end. And it's not so much even crate training. It's just some conditioning to the idea of crates and the idea of confinement and teaching a few really basic sort of behaviors associated with crates, like, you know, how to ask out calmly um, and having that sort of be, again, the sort of default that the puppy comes with. Um, the, the new puppy buyer side of that is coming, um, confident, confident crating. And that way breeders will have that, that resource to send so that this can all be really seamless right for the for the for the puppy which is what's important is that these contextual cues and things work in the new environment it saves a lot um so yes i i think you know as far as breeders go we really would like i would like to see more education around cleanliness um because the lack of cleanliness or the ability to be clean and learn those habits really, I mean, no pun intended, but the shit hits the fan in the new home, right? And we have, and then the sad thing is, mistakes can be made in the frustration of house training that can set a puppy-human relationship seriously off course very quickly. Um, you know, and it can bleed over into things you would never even imagine, um, it can poison the crate. It can poison going to the bathroom in front of people. It can poison going. And, and, you know, we have people that this common advice, which I find very discouraging, that you take a puppy out and if it doesn't go to the bathroom, you lock it in a crate. And then you, you go and get it and you take it out. And if it doesn't go to the bathroom that time, you lock it in a crate. And then it's locked in a crate all night. And it's locked in a crate while you're at work. <laughs> and at, at what point are we balancing this puppy's need to bond with its family and its puppy family having more skills than lock it in a crate? Um, and I, I just am, I'm very sometimes saddened by the very traditional advice that we give people when I see and we added up, I had someone who came to me a week ago and her puppy was spending 20 hours in a crate every day because it was a filthy puppy. It, it was going, it would go to the bathroom. She would take it out. But of course, now it's hesitant to potty in front of her because the bond is 
never really been good. And this puppy was a foster puppy, but it had never gone to the bathroom in front of its caregiver. Like she had a doggy door on her little puppy raising area and the puppies would go out and it was very convenient for her, but they literally had never gone to the bathroom in front of her. And, and so the whole thing fell apart. It just the, the, like the wheels fell off the car. Um, so that's what we're trying to prevent with things like with puppy culture for one, these sort of targeted protocols. Like if puppy culture overwhelms you, <laughs> let's just let's just talk about how we can teach puppies to to go away from their resting and play area to void. And how can we teach baby puppies that going to the bathroom in front of people is normal? That is the expected thing from the beginning. Because if you do it from the beginning as a breeder and you just stand there after they eat, they will go to the bathroom. <laughs> it is predictable. And then you pop a little treat in their mouth or you cheerlead them a little bit. So it's, that's the expected thing. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's normal. It's normal. So when you get the puppy in the new home and the person is standing outside, the puppy's not like, why are you staring at me? This isn't normal, right? So yeah, we do. We have poop school. We have crate school. Um, we're doing shark school. Oh, cool. That's, That'll be awesome. That's, <laughs> that's the next one. And, you know, we when all that one be ready. We all know that biting and mouthing is transitory developmental behavior. But what we want to do is give puppy owners some good skills to to help them handle this in a um, what no harm, <laughs> right? No no harm, no no harm way because often biting and mouthing is another way that the wheels come off the bus. Yeah, and I'd actually um, love to circle back to potty training for a second um because i i actually have given that advice in the past that okay take the puppy out you know wait three to five minutes puppy doesn't go then go back in the crate for 10 minutes then come out and try again um and that's the advice that i've been giving so um i would love to hear um what what other because i'll be frank puppies and potty training are not my area of expertise so it's also one of those things where i'm i'm I refer out <laughs> for that sort of thing. Give right. me the aggression and the separation anxiety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you take the easy uh, stuff then. We'll yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, God, potty training. No, thanks. Um, but uh, yeah, tell me, um, uh, what should I be saying instead? Well, I think the thing with house training is one, we need a history. So we need to know, like if I take, if I know that my puppy needs to potty and I take it outside and it doesn't potty. And I go, hmm, I know this thing needs to potty. I can bring it in the house and put it in the crate. If I do that once or twice, that's okay. If I find that every single day, most of my potty breaks are resulting in my puppy being crated when it comes in, now we have a pattern. So it's sort of like when we tell, used to tell people, you know, just ignore the behavior you don't want and focus on the behavior you do want. And now we sort of tell people, well, if it happens once, maybe ignore it. But if it's happening, if you're, if you're having undesirable behavior that's happening repeatedly, you need to interrupt this cycle and brainstorm another solution. So here, you know, here and there, Put a puppy in a crate. Um, 
But here's the thing. If you're doing that every day and you're taking the puppy out and then you bring it in and you put it in a crate, you have to ask yourself, how is this consequence affecting the behavior that I want? If puppies know that they're going to get locked in a crate after a potty break, this adds anxiety to the potty break because it's now become a pattern. It's happened enough that it's a pattern. So depending on the breed, you may find that the puppy starts to not wanna go in the crate, now it's nipping at you, or you may find that it goes in the crate and then it voids because it can't hold it anymore. So we get into these domino effects. What I would tell people is, one, this is something that I think we don't talk about enough with puppies. We need to pattern train them how to get to the potty area when they get into the new home, we need to take them out so frequently that there's not this pressure that the puppy has to potty every time because we're taking it out every four hours instead of every 30 minutes at first. Um, and I think we need to make better use of things like buddy leashes and keep the puppy with us instead of putting it in a crate and then leaving it. Um, I usually tell people to use the buddy leash. If the puppy goes out and he didn't potty and you know he needs to potty. Now, if they're doing frequent potty breaks, put the puppy on a buddy leash, take it out again in 30 minutes. And then the other thing I think we need to make sure that we do this potty before play routine. So the puppy's always going out on leash from the beginning and then his leash comes off and he gets to play after he voids. Um, so that the puppy has um, a habit that he goes out and he voids and then he plays and explores. Instead of he goes out and he runs around and maybe he potties and maybe he doesn't and maybe he's chasing bugs. And then the person's like, well, it's been 30 minutes and he didn't potty because he's so naughty. And so I'm going to stick him in a crate and that'll teach him. <laughs> and then I'm going to take him back out. Well, the puppy may have had no idea that the expectation was that he potty. He just goes out and plays. So I think it comes down to we need, a, we need a systemic plan. And we need lots of opportunities for puppies to void. And we need to remember that sometimes you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. You, you don't want to poison the crate. I mean, that's... I mean, I mean, we, we see them, right? They're now biting their owner when the owner's trying to shove it in a crate to go to work. Um, so we, it's, it's a balance. It's a balance. I would rather have a good response to the crate and to being in the crate without frustration and those behaviors um, and have the puppy hooked to me with a buddy leash. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to um, we're going to break to hear from our sponsors and then we're going to come back and we're going to do some rapid fire um, controversies around breeding. OK, so we'll be right back. Sully, come. My big black lab mix comes sprinting back to me away from the exciting distractions of the great outdoors. And he has a huge grin on his face. What's he smiling about? And how did I get that rocket recall? The answer is yummy and nutritious treats made by Farmhounds. Farmhounds makes the best all-natural organic treats and chews humanely farmed and pasture-raised to keep your dog healthy and happy. 
Visit their website, farmhounds.com, and use the coupon code K9Convo to receive 25% off your purchase. Hi guys, I'm dropping into this episode to tell you about my puppy training class. I worked super hard to create this online video puppy training class that covers everything from potty training and chewing and nupping and other, you know, kind of normal puppy problems to basic socialization and some obedience, you know, sit, stay down, all of that normal stuff. So if you've got a new puppy or you know someone who's got a new puppy, this course is a really great place to get started, especially if you're on a wait list for a puppy puppy kindergarten class, you can't get into a puppy kindergarten class, or just want something to get started on right away while your puppy is finishing up their vaccinations because it's all online. So you can find it under the courses tab on journeydogtraining.com. And we're back. So that was quite a bit about um, early puppy raising. Um, I think I learned a lot. I, um, I've got a couple things I'm going to change about how I'm uh, helping clients through um, some potty, potty training in particular. Um, so now we're going to, as I said, we're going to try to keep this relatively short, but we're going to go into um, three different kind of common misconceptions or things that are stated as fact that we're going to we're going to dive into a little bit. Um, so the first one that I, I see quite a bit online and I'm sure Suzanne and Danny, you guys see even more of this because of the groups that you guys are likely to be in, um, is whether or not as a breeder, your job is to improve the breed and what that even potentially means. So, um, Danny, would you like to kind of dive in? I think this was actually your idea to add this. So. Yeah, sure. Um, Oh yeah, that's it's it's a definitely a loaded conversation. Um, anytime you look at starting to breed or anyone that's ever interested, they're always like, "Well, what what dogs do you have? Are you getting the best of the best? Are you breeding to improve the breed?" Um, and I think that that's a, a valid point, but also just kind of a go to by a lot of of the long time breeders because I think that what they're more worried about is, "Are you breeding to produce subpar?" dogs subpar for the breed dogs as opposed to good representations of the breed um i do not think a good representation of the breed necessarily has to be improving the breed overall um as a bit of an opposition to suzanne's breed my breed is pretty young i mean german shepherds aren't aren't an ancient breed but aussies you're looking at really standard we we don't go back more than 30 generations. Um, and that's like, you're lucky to get dogs that are born in the early 1900s in your pedigree that have, that have been tracked that far. Um, so coming from a pretty new breed, the idea of improving the breed has always kind of sat wrong with me. Um, I want to improve my specific line. I want to improve specific dogs within my line in certain ways, I don't necessarily want to change the breed and I don't see a clear way on how to improve the breed without changing it. Um, when we are such a young breed with a very clear uh, function based purpose, um, Australian shepherds were bred to be kind of a good all around ranch dog. They should, they, they are supposed to be versatile, which doesn't mean they can do agility, obedience, and rally. What it means is that they can herd basically whatever you point them at and say, Hey, could you go work that? Can you work rank cattle? Can you work camels? Can you work Buffalo? Can you, um, can you move ducks? Can you put the chickens away? 
can you can you understand and kind of see the big picture of herding and and handle what I need you to handle on the farm? Can you also potentially protect the farm if needed? Um, can you hold up for many years? Can you be functional for many years? Can you go home at night and hang out with your people or you get snowed in in a blizzard and the the chores are relatively minimal? Can you hang out without going stir crazy? Um, I think a lot of what made the breed what it is is still within the breed. Um, so if anything, I want to, in my personal breeding program, I want to honor what the breed was created for and make good, solid representations that would make the founders of the breed proud, as opposed to essentially changing the breed in the name of improvement. Um, if you look at a lot of the old dogs, and I think that in all breeds we have this this thing where we look at the old dogs of the breed, the the original founders, and we're like, oh, that was a nice-looking dog for that time. It's terrible for now. If that walked into the ring now, we'd throw it out and laugh it out of the ring and say, why on earth would you ever breed that? Um without taking into account that that is literally what the breed is built on. Um, I think that fads come in so strongly that we use that as an excuse as we use improving the breed as an excuse to breed toward that fad. Um, Aussies show and working type have, have had their various fads from different styles of working. Aussies should be a loose eyed upright breed. Um, Aussies do have Aussie eye, but it should look nothing like border collie eye. What that means is that when they are hurting, they shouldn't be dropping their whole front end. Um, generally Aussie eye means that they're going to be dropping their head and their neck a little bit and using some pressure from, um, from basically eye contact versus like the border collies who face them straight on head down predator style. It's kind of an in-between. They should be able to switch it on and off and, take into account what kind of stock they're working. Um, there's various styles within the breed, and this breed has been founded on a huge variety because it was whatever functioned. How did they work? Did they work like we wanted them to? Did they look generally like we wanted them to? Cool, breed them together. They were functional dogs. Um, so there's a huge variety in appearance as well as working style just within the breed. And then to to say that you're improving the breed also kind of assumes that there's a specific one-size-fits-all original piece of it. Um, the Like our, our breed standard mentions moderate a vast number of times. And there's always kind of the, the conversation about, well, is it moderate for within the breed or is it moderate compared to a Bernese Mountain Dog and an Italian Greyhound? Um, what is this moderation? And it's really because there's been such a variety that started the breed that you can't really, I, at least in my opinion, I don't feel like you can necessarily choose to improve that. Um, I think that you, you can improve what you have in your breeding program and what you have in your household and the very specific bitch and dog that you're breeding. But to overall say, I'm going to improve the breed to me, it speaks of changing the breed. Um, and like I said, if you look back at some of the old dogs, we'll freak out about how terrible they would, if, how, how badly they would do if they walked in the ring today and how unbreeding worthy we would consider them um, without taking into the account of why they were bred and do they honor what the breed was founded on. Um, I think that we've had a lot of issues with that in various breeds and how far they've changed from their original intent and their original styles. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense. Um, I, mean, uh, I think the times that I've kind of heard, 
and it's funny because I think it's interesting that a lot of times people say like, oh, we need to be improving to or breeding to improve the breed. But then when um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Dalmatians, but there was some outcrossing that was being done in Dalmatians in a couple lines, I believe, to try to work on mm-hmm. liver issues, kidney issues. Kidney. Kidney. Um, And I'm obviously not crazy well-versed in it, but the pushback that people got for um, trying to fix a really legitimate health issue, um, because now these dogs aren't, you know, purebred anymore. um, Right. Was interesting. And and like, I'm not taking a firm stance on it, but it's, it's funny that, you know, when there is something where it's like, no, this is actually a pretty serious problem in this breed. And then these breeders were trying to do something about it so that they could actually produce healthy dogs. There was pushback on it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah. And that's, that's for, it's kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth where it's, we're going to improve the breed, but only with dogs that are already within the breed that go back to the dogs that we originally had in the breed that we don't necessarily like. (laughs) Right. Well, and, and then it's like, well, but if they're all, if they're all already part of the breed and the, all the problem is within the breed, then we've got to have some genetic diversity in order to make a change if that's actually what we want to be doing. And I agree that, yeah, if you're actually trying to like breed Aussies with a ton of eye that look more like border collies, then you're not really breeding back towards trying to be Aussies. You're just like, you're, you want it to, have border collie. And you, you very well might be improving your very specific Mm -hmm. line in order to work your style of stock in the way that your stock works best with a lot of eye and a lot of creep and potentially prick ears and just kind of the stuff that goes along with um, that that general picture mm-hmm. of what a lot of the the um, uh, what a lot of the the strong eyed dogs because at that point and it's fair you're breeding for function and a lot of the 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 pretty factors go out of it <laughs> and then you have the other side where you're breeding for all the pretty factors but can they work the way they were bred to? Yeah. And and it, you kind of end up with this, you you still have a variety, but now they're more isolated pockets of yes, variety. Yes, which is definitely something I think if we that see makes in sense. a lot of breeds. Again, I'm... Oh, for sure. I'm only moderately familiar with Border Collies and far less so with every other breed. But um, <laughs> the differences between like right. Showline Border Collie versus Herding, Working Border Collies versus Sport Border Collies versus just like oh, yeah. kind of random Border and Collie And don't even is, get started on German Shepherds. Huh? Don't even get started on German right. Shepherds. That was, <laughs> like we talked about last time, that was my original breed, and it's Suzanne's, and oh my god, you'd the, how many ver- versions can come out of Europe? <laughs> like, where there's distinct lines, or distinct styles. Um, it's, it's a fascinating idea where it should be one unified breed, but then we we isolate them into very specialized pockets mm-hmm. and say that we improve the breed. Yeah. So um, let's move kind of along to the next one. So I think uh, another thing that I see sometimes as kind of a, uh, you know, this is something that I think I see in, in blog posts of like how to pick a breeder. And like one of the things they're looking for is like breeders shouldn't do it full time. And this kind of ties into the other um, statement that we're going to be picking apart a, bit, a little bit here is, and breeders shouldn't be making money from it. And I think those come together. Um but then you also see it the other way where I think sometimes I see um, people saying, well, like, oh, my gosh, you've got a job and you're trying to breed. How on earth are you giving the puppies enough time? Um, so mm-hmm. should breeders be doing it full time? Is it OK to make money from breeding? Um, Suzanne, I know you had a lot of good thoughts about this. 
I do. Um, I, I think the, the short answer is that both your previous question and this question have, have a common root in the United States, and that is this root belief that we have allowed ourselves to believe that somehow breeding dogs is dirty business, and mm -hmm. we basically shouldn't be doing it, but if we're going to do it, we should suffer. And or we have to be, quote unquote, improving the breed. Um, and I think the, the root of that is that we've sort of allowed ourselves to believe that preserving these breeds is bad. And so we start to then piece out, well, who's, quote unquote, good, who is free really? of sin and, and who is not. And one way that we've decided that is based on how successful people are with it. If people are financially successful with breeding dogs, they become horrible, greedy people. Even though their mm -hmm. very financial success means that they can probably afford to take better care of their animals <laughs> than a lot of people can. And we've decided that people that are financially unsuccessful, so they are losing money hand over fist, that somehow these people are the righteous people because they love mm -hmm. their breeds and they're willing to suffer to make more of them that are usually much better at showing and thus are improved and often in my breed, more extreme. So... I think that um, that's if we if we piece apart that bit of it and and we can finally just say, you know, preserving these breeds is important and producing dogs for a specific purpose, such as herding or detection or sports or companion work, which it is work, frankly, for a lot of dogs, <laughs> yeah. that these are important activities and these dogs are valuable. They make people's lives better. They make human society better. And so this work is good work. If we can get that piece sort of settled, then we can say, hey, if, if you can breed dogs and be financially successful doing that, then more power to you because those those. Breeders are often the ones that are not having to make super painful, difficult decisions. And um, as to doing it full time, I think that it's very much the same as dog training. If you're looking for somebody to help you with your um, reactive or aggressive dog, do you want somebody helping you with that who does it part time occasionally when they feel like it and have time? Or do you want somebody helping you that is a professional that does it every day of the week and, and works very diligently mm -hmm. and seriously at that work? So here's something people don't realize. Breeding dogs takes skill. It takes skill to, and there's a lot of skills. And breeders may have strengths in one area and weakness in other areas. This is normal. So, you know, you've got pedigree construction, you've got, genetics. you know, maintaining your line, basic understanding of genetics, health testing, your breed standard, basic understanding of behavior, learning theory, human behavior, and all of these things. And people that do this regularly, meaning that they are, they are having litters every year, maybe multiple litters in a year. 
they are having opportunities to practice and learn. And they will get better. If they have a growth mindset, they will get better over time with what they do. So that's a completely different experience that you have when you're getting a puppy. If you are talking to somebody who has a family of dogs that they have skillfully crafted over 25, 30 years versus somebody who bought a couple dogs and they're nice dogs. There's nothing wrong with the dogs and they're having one litter from them. This is their first litter. And maybe they have a mentor, but you know, and I mentor people. Mentors are great. Mm -hmm. A mentor is not a replacement for personal experience. Someone telling you what to do and helping you is not the same as doing it yourself. And quite often they're not local. They're not local or they may have their own shortcomings too. Like Mm -hmm. we, we, we throw mentoring around like a mentor is a superhero that can do everything for you and excuse you. From that you can also find at Walmart. Yeah, just go get a mentor. Oh my gosh, don't even get me started on that. Like, go get a mentor <laughs> and you'll be great. You'll be improving the breed. And then we have this <laughs> recipe for ending up with breeders that don't even know what they don't know. So um, I don't know if I can speak to whether people should be breeding full-time or not. I think that depends on the person and what their life is because breeders are people. But I can say this, they, they are, like, it's amazing. They may have a job they're very passionate about. And, or they, their job may be breeding dogs and producing dogs. But I will tell you this, is that you cannot get better at anything if you don't do it. You, you have to do it. It's like, we would never expect a dog trainer, a dog trainer to be really skilled and proficient if they only train their personal dog when they feel like it. We expect them to have a level of competency. We expect them to go out and work with other people's dogs and other dogs and large numbers of dogs. And dog breeding is no different. There are a lot of traits that you need to be able to manage, you know, genetic traits, behavioral traits, etc. There's a lot of skills that you need. And it's unfair... That we expect breeders to do this if they're breeding one litter every three or four years. Especially if they've got no idea what their dogs and their lines produce. Right? They bought their dogs. And you don't get to know that until you've raised more than one litter. Right. We have this in my breed. Every generation is a different kennel name. And Mm -hmm. and it's not a mentor-mentee relationship where... You know that this kennel name and this kennel name are actually a, a mentor-mentee where there's homogeny in the line and the family moving forward and breeders working very closely. No, this is somebody who bought a dog because it was beautiful or because it, it was a great working dog or it had the right titles or whatnot. And now they are, they are starting their breeding program and they... They're just at the foot of the mountain, baby. They, they, don't, they don't even, and sometimes they don't even see the mountain. And then we start having this sort of thing thrown around where people that rarely do something right. pretend that they are somehow better at it than people that do it every day and whose livelihood depends on it. I think that's arrogance. I really do. I, I think it comes from a root feeling that breeding is dirty, 
and we should be ashamed that we're doing it. So people that do it and are proud and are proficient at it, we somehow decide they're, they're wait, they're the problem? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, well, and then they hide because that's not okay to be. Yeah. Yeah. Because then, God forbid, you might be one of those puppy mills. Mm. That's what I was just going to say. Is I Or a greeter. You're just a greeter. Oh, yep. You yep. know, they're not improving the breed. Well, and if you're not keeping a puppy from the litter you breed, oh, yeah. then clearly you're not doing it you're right. Just, your dogs are sex slaves at that point, Dan. But you also can't have very many dogs. Right. No, you <laughs> so can't you have very many dogs. You can't, you know, you can't keep too many. You can't keep none. You have to mm-hmm. lose money every time, which means you have to have an independent source of wealth. But you're and also not allowed to work full time because then you're not spending enough time with the puppies. If you, how are you <laughs> going to work full time and care for your puppies? And I have literally had breeders that I've that I've mentored say, "I can't expect it to litter box train my puppies. I don't have time for that. I work." Mm-hmm. And so, and yet, because they have champion dogs, the fact that their puppies are covered in filth when people aren't there to see it is okay. They they're still the best yep. breeders in the world. You know, so I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of illogical thinking. Um, I think that there's nothing wrong with being proficient at something and being skilled yeah, at it and being good absolutely. at it. And there's something inherently wrong with this idea that we have that our most, I don't know about Danny's breed, but my breed was built on big high volume breeders, what we would call high volume breeders, breeders that were not ashamed or afraid to breed dogs. A lot of ours, uh, a lot of the, well, some of the show lines go back to a couple big kennels that that were like that, um, that have produced multiple breeds of well-producing dogs. And then the, and this is, this would probably make plenty of people have a heart attack, but a lot of like the old style, like working Aussie breeders, a fair number of them had pretty large kennels with pretty big numbers and they were in kennels. They weren't house dogs. Like they might be raised in a house and they'll be worked on the stock, but they were sold because they were good, good breeders that produced dogs that were what they were supposed to be. And they were shipped on a train and a cart sight unseen to somebody that needed a good working dog. Right, right. We um, used to have this. We used to have breeders that had this kind of experience. And what's happened is we've reduced the numbers of breeders that have vast experience. And so there's fewer of them. And we place more demands on them because they're expected to mentor breeders who are not as serious as they are, who are kind of doing it here and there. And they're expected to transmit a lifetime of hard-earned experience to somebody who's doing something occasionally in order to protect that knowledge so that knowledge isn't lost. And to me, and then then the thing that really gets me is a lot of these mentees will say, you know, I've, I've been breeding for 10 years, but I would never consider myself knowledgeable enough to to be a mentor so Mm -hmm. somehow we have failed we have failed in our in our culture of of preserving purebred dogs where we are beginning to disparage the very kinds of breeders that are responsible for the breeds we have and the knowledge that we have and we're losing Mm -hmm. it we're losing this knowledge and we're losing a culture of helping other breeders because breeders are so afraid of not being perfect 
mm-hmm. and being ripped because, to shreds. Yeah, that's what you're expected to find. Yeah, there, there is. You have to you have to find that perfect breeder to be your mentor, right? But no one like, at least I know some of the older breeders, and thankfully I've been able to talk to some that were around when our standard was written. Um, they are very knowledgeable about their own lines, but they don't claim to know everything about every other line. So if you're breeding, you can be on the same page as far as end goals, and you can respect each other for knowing each other's lines and go forward from there. It's not like you have, it's not always just a teacher, teacher mentor situation. It's not a, it's not just that kind of a street. It can just be two people that have geniuses in separate areas coming together to improve their own lines. And don't you think that's that's because it used to be that we didn't, we weren't as vicious with each other as we are today. Like you and I could both be in the same breed and, and know our breed, but I'm also stunned that breeders have much less hands-on experience with dogs and their breed than I, I think is beneficial to the breeds but Mm -hmm. we could be traveling down the road and have separate goals separate ways of getting there different bloodlines whatever and still tremendously respect the other breeders abilities in their dogs and now we've come to this point where we've culturally are losing that ability and we've now become proud that we can shred other breeders down. Mm-hmm. And be gatekeepers for our breed. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly. That being said, I don't generally sell with full breeding rights because I don't feel like I have enough of a line. To, I don't want that different kennel name every generation. I want to have a couple generations to where there's some sort of type, whatever that ends up being, that I do have a goal toward, but I don't control genetics. I just try to guide them. Um, and then... It's nice to have, I've had more than one amazing person come to me for a puppy and the, they would like to help out in creating my avid line by owning dogs. Oh, and then the, here's the other part is, is they would like to own a dog that we could either co-breed or I would be able to breed and we talk about breeding decisions and whatnot and then I would raise the puppies, but then those people get get reamed because how dare you send off your bitches to someone else's home. Right. Well, and how dare you just want to breed dogs? Like only, right. Only people who are improving the breed. Like, I don't know. We've walled ourselves off. And only one per litter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah, we need, you know, and we want people to buy in. Like you Mm -hmm. need to be, you know, you need to show a dog for a decade and, and, right. and have so many top tens in your breed or have gone to the national so many times. And then you can come back and talk about breeding. Like, Well, at least then we can co-own with five other owners. Right. And then maybe you might be able to breed How that many dog one kennel day. kennel names can we have on a dog? You know, I, I think <laughs> if we could stick 10 kennel names and 10 co-breeders on a dog, then we can say it's okay that we have bred this dog. So yep. and at the same time, we bemoan how, and I can see this, you know, the people that mentored me are dead now. And I'm older. And I want to pass what I know on to other breeders. And we do that. But we need more people. We need more good people that are willing to protect these breeds. And 
you know, we just keep narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing down. Yeah. Who's allowed Which to Which means breathe? we also need to be good people yeah, people, right. not just dog people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and totally. What, what dogs can be in the breed? Like, this is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. We... It, not we need it's be, it's better to have more mediocre dogs than to have two outstanding dogs in your breed yeah agreed you know you need well population it, there comes a point yeah, and you if you genetic breed, diversity um and if you breed more than one puppy out of a litter then clearly your litter wasn't quality because there should only be one or two show puppies per litter right when really each parent just lost 50 percent of the genes per puppy Right. Well, and obviously, so the more of the litter you can keep in the gene pool, the better. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but then you're overbreeding. Then you're, oh, Alan, you're probably not improving the breed, Danny. Okay. <laughs> well, and you're taking advantage of your puppy people yeah. who are clearly just holding on to your your breeding bitches. Right. Right. Which is not the case. How, yeah, but you can't keep too many breeding bitches, Danny. Well, yeah, okay. but you can't give them away you either. You can't so. put them in guardian homes because that's just tantamount to being a greeter. Yes. <laughs> so you can't have breeding bitches. You can't not have breeding bitches, but maybe if you had one, then you could breed every four or five years, and then you'd really be yeah. a good breeder. But you have to make sure that your list is way longer than any number of puppies you could produce. If your waiting list isn't at least two years long. I mean, when people apply right. for a puppy I don't want to wait that long. No. And, oh, my gosh. Their, <laughs> yeah. kids could be, their kids could be getting into college. Like, they apply when they're in <laughs> junior high, and their kids go off yeah. to college, and then they can get a dog from you. Like people know when it's the right time. They'll be like, you know, in the next six to eight months would be the perfect time for me to get a puppy. And they go to a breeder and they're like, well, I'm so sorry. I'm a good breeder. So you're going to need to wait two years. And guess where they exactly. go? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Not that breeder. Well, and I, yeah. I, I think and, a lot of these guidelines too probably came from, you know, some people having a, you know, I don't think they're coming always from this terrible place of just, like trying to over police. Oh, no. I think a lot of times it's like, well, yeah, no, we do want, we don't want breeders who are going to get 500, you know, breed 500 puppies a year and just make buckets of money because then that starts looking like a puppy mill. And I think often could be a puppy mill, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I've got a, a friend who used to work at a commercial breeder for protection Malinois and, you know, they had 60 dogs mm-hmm. on on property, and those dogs were not being bred to be pets, so it's kind of okay they weren't being raised in a house. Right. Um, they were being right. bred to be working protection dogs. And that sounded like a pretty great breeder. So I think a lot of these are just, you know, they're guidelines, they're things that, you know, were cropped, written down in some sort of um, listicle online, where it's like, when you're looking Mm -hmm. for a breeder, here are some like quick, easy things that you can kind of skim through. Right. And we've made them gospel. And we've made them gospel, exactly. But if you can afford to pay somebody to help you raise your dogs, then clearly you're producing too many dogs, as opposed to having a small ratio of dog to handler to be able to have every single dog meet as much of its potential as it can. Of course. Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So it's, it defies the, 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 in a nutshell is it (laughs) defies a a top 10 list because there are some breeds that are so rare and their populations are so in jeopardy that a two year waiting list might be legit. Yeah. And then there are other breeds where their populations are robust. There are lots of good dogs. Yeah. And in those breeds, you you it's completely legit to say I'm going to 
find a breeder who's going to have a puppy for me in the next six to eight months. Yeah. I mean, that's border collies. That's about where I'm at. There are so many border collies out there. Um, You know, and even though I'm pretty picky, and I think there's another thing that, um, and we need to start wrapping this up, but um, I think there's an ickiness, as far as I can tell in breeders, of saying I'm producing pets. And that's kind of frowned upon. And, um, you know, if people are looking for their next agility grand champion, yes, they might be willing to wait. Or their next IPO dog or their next herding companion. Yeah, they might be willing to wait for two years. And you might end up doing that anyway, um, even if you had other options because you're, you've got specific needs. But the reality is the vast majority of dogs in this country are pets, and asking yep. someone to wait two years for a family companion, it's exactly what pushes people to go to pup, uh, you know, pet stores or, um, or whatnot. And unfortunately, it, you know, it'd be great if everyone was like, oh, I'm going to have to wait two years to get a puppy. That means I'll go look at, um, you know, the really sweet three, four, five-year-old mutt at the shelter. But once people mm-hmm. are set on a puppy... Um, it's pretty hard to convince them that they should um, go elsewhere. Well, they're, and set they're, just a, gonna, oh. they're set on a breed. You yeah. know, I want, I want a breed. And the other issue I think is touching on that point to a point that's become increasingly apparent to me over the last 10 years is that pet quality puppies, pets that are going to be living in companion homes, and I would include most hobby sport dogs in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed are somehow the byproduct. They're the, right. the cast off. We're not, we're not thinking about traits that are needed to be a good pet. We're thinking about traits that are needed to be a good Schutzen dog or a good herding dog or a good agility dog and, or a great show dog. Yeah. And, and we those just are not assume, the same thing. Yeah. No, my gosh, they're not. And we just assume pet people should be happy with the ones that we don't want or can't put into those types of homes like in my breed, there are far more sport dog puppies produced every year than there are serious, committed sport dog handlers that you can count on being involved in dog sports for the life, the working lifetime of that dog. So, you know, five mm-hmm. to six years. And so we, we end up with this problem, and it's not just limited to my breed, but I think my breed's a good poster child for it, where we really often breeders are just not putting thought into what traits the dogs that they produce actually need in reality to be pleasant Mm -hmm. companions and not to be a menace to their family or a menace to society Mm -hmm. because they're not being worked eight to 10 hours a week. Of course. I also think in, in your breed, you're more, you, I feel like our breeds are a little bit opposite in expectations of owners where a lot of times like Aussie people get the, I want a high level agility dog without being a high level agility handler, <laughs> a good high level agility handler and trainer right. can pull the best out of a crappy dog. Right. They want a dog that comes pre-programmed with agility 2.0. We have that. And in that's my not breed. what happens. We, we definitely okay. have a lot of, of people that, um, like I get people every day that have never been to a, um, IPO, IPG, Schutzen, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> club. Mm-hmm in their life. 
Okay, yep. And what they want a great dog for Schutzen. And we actually got to the point where we started requiring that people who wanted a dog for Schutzen had to actually be in a Schutzen club, be a member of it, for six months before we would consider them. Because what happens is people think that these sports are going to be fun and easy. And Mm -hmm. they may or may not be, depending on that person's disposition, their willingness to, to do the work. And There's so much that has to do with how the dog and the handler make a team. It, it it's is so and, much and more so than much any about the trainer. dog or handler separately. Yeah, like if if honestly, if if you are a really good trainer, then you're going to get a completely different, you know, performance from this dog than if you are a brand new trainer. It's almost like being mm-hmm. a breeder in that practice and dedication right. over time and makes perfect. So. What the right. problem and we experience ha- in similar dogs because what you could pull out of a Schutzen German Shepherd, a Schutzen bred German Shepherd, right. might be totally different than what you can pull out of a show, showbred miniature bull terrier right. in Schutzen. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where I think breeders. It goes back. It all goes back to this idea that breeding is somehow bad. Yeah. So it does. If, mm-hmm. If breeders aren't breeding for top-tier working dogs or top-tier show dogs, they are somehow Mm -hmm. dirty and bad. And these breeders, like the doodle community, where they have breeders that are focusing specifically on what traits make good pets. All of a sudden, that's a bad thing. (laughs) And and now they're bad. They also make money. Even though (laughs) the people that get these dogs are often very happy with them and... So I think we need to have a little bit of that doodle mentality, if you will, and we need to start asking ourselves, are we producing dogs with traits that make them an asset to their owner's life? Of course. Um, It doesn't mean... still honor the breed. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not making a generic dog. Well, right. But not everybody's suited to the the same breed. Well, and we have this issue in my breed where where the, the handlers are trying to change the breed to suit their fads. Yep. And the same thing has yep. happened in the show world. Oh yeah, no, that's happened in I think in every in every sport, every competitive thing. The biggest thing, like that, I think that's part of what what really made me come back to the improving the breed bit is if you have as an example a dog that was bred for a task and they continue to do the task they were bred for, the odds are a lot slimmer that you're going to end up breeding toward a fad and toward what wins. A good Aussie should be able to excel at agility. It will not run like a Border Collie. It will not train like a Border Collie. But it should have the physical capabilities similar. But if we continue to breed them to run agility like a Border Collie, right. guess how much like an Aussie they're going to remain. Of right. You're, it's yeah. going to move the whole breed in a direction that is not respectful of the origin of the breed. We have this in mm-hmm. German Shepherds, and we try to make German Shepherds work like Malinois. Yep. And those ones are are not, and then you end up with the pet people that want those dogs because right. they look badass, right? And they're black sable, and they're really cool. Uh-huh. And they're like the police, and they're dog. ninety pounds, right? And, and they show up, and, and it, freaky as all get out in your puppy class, and it just pulls the breed away from the all-purpose farm herding dog that the German Shepherd was meant to be, and then we pat yep. ourselves on the back. Because yep. we are producing dogs to meet the fads of sport mm-hmm. dog handlers. Yeah. And they may or may not be loyal to the German Shepherd. They, they'll, right. they'll, they may go to a different breed. 
if that yeah. suits their And I don't want to say that, that I necessarily condone every crossbreeding, but if you're going to breed for a sport, right. pick dogs that suit that sport. And if it ends up being a German Shepherd, Mal, yeah. Dutchy, Staffy, have at it. Totally. Right? As long as it's that's, with purpose. That's how these and breeds, the came, that's how breeds came, apart, came to be initially. People mm-hmm. crossed the dogs that were available to them to make dogs that were suitable for a need that they have. So yep. um, I think we do need to preserve these breeds. I don't know that we, that we should feel obligated as breeders to meet the demands of every show exhibitor or every tri- you know, trial exhibitor. And or every sport. Every sport. Because that's what those are. And, and we need to somehow, we need to be able to say, the tail doesn't wag the dog. Of course. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. No. I think we got to wrap it up here. Um, <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun. I think I learned a lot. Um, so um, before we go, can each of you guys tell um, tell our listeners where to find you once again? So we'll start with Danny. Okay. Um, I'm at avidaussies.com. Um, Avid Aussies also has a Facebook group. It's a group, not a page. So you can just go ahead and join. It's all public anyway. Um, I just like the user interaction on it better. Um, you can also find me at avidossies at Gmail. Uh, there's a contact form on my website and Danielle Spady on Facebook. Um, I'm pretty available. Facebook's probably the easiest way to message me and get a hold of me versus email because that gets filled up real fast. Totally. But I try to be pretty available to anybody that's interested in Aussies or breeding. Um, I love supporting breeders. Awesome. And, uh, Suzanne, where can people find you? Yep. People can find me on the web at, um, Austerlitz Shepherds. They can also find me at Clickety Split Dog Training, which is where we house the um, information on Crate School and Poop School for breeders that are interested in that or fosters. Um, We're on Facebook. They can find me on my Austerlitz page. We have an Austerlitz group. And we also have a German Shepherd-themed group, um, which isn't exclusively mine. I have a fantastic team of uh, professional trainers and German Shepherd owners that help me with this page, and it's called the German Shepherd Dog Network. Um, you can find me in any of those places. Um, we're we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Awesome, cool. So um, before you before we go, um, everyone, make sure that you guys are subscribed to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find your episode notes. Um, show notes, all of that sort of stuff at canineconvos.com. We'll be sure to have links to anything mentioned in the episode. I'm Kayla Fratt, owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find my blog and hire me for remote behavior help at journeydogtraining.com. You can also check out my YouTube channel on Facebook. They're both under Journey Dog Training. And my dog Barley has an Instagram. It's Collie, period, without period, borders. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks for listening. Bye.